This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Do you want to upskill your knowledge and approach to the management of male factor infertility? Here's a practical and detailed podcast that you will find most helpful. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Sarah Catford. Uh, Dr. Catford, tell us about yourself. So I'm an endocrinologist um, and an andrologist. So I've subspecialized in male reproductive health. And I work currently in uh, public hospitals, um, and I also hold a research position at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. Sarah, today we're just looking at male factor infertility. Tell us about it. Well, male factor infertility is actually far more common um, than I think the general public realise, as well as um, many clinicians, including my peers. Um, Historically, the emphasis has been on, on women, but actually men contribute just as much to a couple's chance of conceiving. So it's common. It affects about one in 20 men and 15% of couples we know are unable to conceive within 12 months. And that meets the definition of infertility. And of those couples, men contribute to 30 to 50% of a couple's infertility. Um, so So it's very common. And there's, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to, to male infertility, um, but I think times are changing now, so there's a lot more emphasis on the man and his role in, um, in, you know, in, in conceiving. I'm going to just start by putting a, um, a scenario before you, and I, I guess what I'm after is to hear the sorts of conversations that a GP may have uh, with a couple who are having problems with infertility and how the GP could actually have a sort of a conversation with the man and map the steps forward. Um, so, Sarah, we have a, a 31-year-old male attending with his partner. They have, in fact, tried to conceive for more than a year without success. A lot of attention had been paid to investigating the, uh, the woman. Uh, now there is probably a need to speak to the man. How should we do it as GPs? I think um, talking to the couple about the, how, free, how common it is is a good starting point. So to let the couple know that it's, you know, it's now routine to not only speak with the female but also the man about, um, about their medical history and the role that they play and what may be impacting or affecting their chances of falling pregnant. So I think just kind of painting that picture so the man doesn't kind of you know, freak out and think that he's unusual in any way. I think just um, making it very clear that it's, you know, it's very common and so it's important that you have that conversation with the man 
And then I think it's just about getting a kind of general, like you would with them, with you know, with the woman, um, obviously just kind of getting an understanding of his general medical health. So, you know, the usual kind of history about medical conditions, regular medications he may or may not be on, and then um, environmental factors um, such as, so occupation is important. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I would say very rarely do I meet a man who there is some um, hazardous occupation, but really your, I guess the main thing would be to just ask about kind of if they're working with toxic chemicals or, or they've had some sort of occupational exposure to something that might be detrimental to their, their reproductive health. But other than occupation, I'm asking about, you know, smoking and recreational drug use and alcohol and, and about their weight are important parts of the social, you know, kind of social history taking. And I should say, I suppose, in terms of their medical, medical, general medical health, a very easy question to ask and where I always kind of start. I like to start kind of chronologically and I always start from birth and I ask if he's aware of a history of undescended testes. And that's because it's very, very frequent. It's the commonest kind of congenital malformation of, of male in male births. And even if it is corrected at a young age, if the testes are brought down within a year of life, it's still associated with male infertility later on. So I, I find for me personally, it's helpful to start kind of there and then to go through. So I kind of start with history of birth, if there are any kind of birth complications, in particular undescended testes or congenital malformations like hypospadias, which is also linked. And then um, questions about surgery as, you know, in, during infancy, like inguinal hernia repairs, where there may have been damage to the testes. And then I kind of go from there to kind of through childhood and adolescence and ask about pubertal development and if there were any concerns growing up um, alongside their peers or their brothers and questions about history of significant testicular injury from trauma, in repeated infections, torsion, um, mumps. That's always important to ask specifically about mumps and any kind of other insults that they may or may not have been aware of kind of through their, you know, adolescence and into early adulthood. And then, um, and then ask them, you know, specifically about perhaps certain medical conditions um, like metabolic, the kind of metabolic health, such as diabetes, and always ask about weight because we know obesity has uh, impacts male, fertil male fertility. So, yeah, so I think, yeah, a very thorough medical history, review of medications, social history. I ask about family history um, because the genetic basis is very strong for male infertility and occasionally you might meet a man whose brother has had difficulty or there's an, a known family history which is some which can be relevant and, and helpful in guiding in guiding your investigations um, but I would say most of the time there's nothing relevant on family history but I always ask and then of course um examination if you can um, during the consultation or although it may not be appropriate at that time you may want to reschedule because this is probably going to be a lengthy consultation and then there will be some preliminary investigations that can be performed for the man we should get to the examination and investigation shortly uh, but you mentioned uh, medications a couple of times what would you be asking about and and why there are lots of medications that are implicated in or can potentially affect um, male fertility, but the two, you know, kind of um, ones that you should be should particularly ask about is the use of exogenous testosterone um, and anabolic steroids at the gym. 
And, you know, if someone is um, wishing to conceal that, then they're obviously not going to admit to, to using those medications. And you hope that they're not if they're trying to conceive. But, you know, it's surprising how, free, how common it is, um, you know, that young men will use and abuse um, steroids at the gym. So always, I always ask about those and, and just drop a, a mention in that they're obviously a potent contraceptive for men, just in case they happen to be taking them. So those would be the, the main medications um, that I'd ask about. But there are other medications um, such as opioids. So long, you know, long-term chronic opioid exposure can suppress the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Um, so that's important. So any opioid use and also um, glucocorticoids, so high-dose steroids that are not anabolic, antigenic steroids can also suppress the axis. And then many antidepressants um, can affect sexual function. Um, so they're quite well known for um, um, delayed ejaculation, but may also interfere with erectile function, as well as um, many, you know, um, some, some antihypertensives um, and some of the cardiovascular drugs so some antihypertensives um, may um, affect erectile function, such as beta blockers or calcium channel antagonists. Um, Sarah, with regard to the use of exogenous testosterone and anabolic steroid at the gym, are, are the uh, problems um, long-lasting or permanent or are they reversible? Um, so that's a good question. So the effects of anabolic steroids and exogenous testosterone use on fertility may well be temporary. Um, it does depend on the duration of use and the, the mode, the, the preparation used and how it was administered. So there are some anabolic steroids and testosterone um, preparations that have a short half-life and therefore will have a kind of shorter onset and offset. For many men or most men who abuse anabolic steroids, they're injecting very high doses of intramuscular testosterone for which the half-life is much longer and the effects will be, the effects will be longer. So, and of course, the, the duration at which the man has used or abused these medications will also um, dictate how long it will take to recover. So we think that most men will eventually recover to their baseline or pre-level um, fertility kind of status. But that may take, you know, potentially 12 months or even up to 24 months. So it can be a lengthy process. Wow, that, that is a long time, isn't it? I, I just wonder whether the young men who use such high doses of IM uh, anabolic steroids are aware of this. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think many of them aren't. And I suppose for many, they start abusing these steroids, you know, at a, such a young age when they're not thinking about family planning or their future fertility. Now, addressing all these issues, uh, are there other reversible causes for male infertility? Yes, so this is a big kind of um, topic, really. There are lots of causes of male infertility, and some of them are reversible. Um, however, many are not. Of the reversible causes, um, they would include um, environmental factors that a man may be able to um, modify. So these include um, obesity smoking, other substance um, abuse or excessive alcohol, also being critically ill or malnourished. So if a man has been hospitalised with a major acute illness, such as, you know, COVID, then that will temporarily affect his fertility and that we hope will, of course, be reversible. 
We mentioned certain medications like testosterone and anabolic steroids should be reversible, those effects, although they may be may take some time. And then there are um, hormone disturbances that may be reversible if the underlying cause is treated. Um, so, for example, um, hyperprolactinemia, of which for which there are many causes, um, including, for instance, you know, the use of antipsychotic medication that's you know frequently observed, or a pituitary, you know, a prolactinoma. If the underlying cause is treated um, and the um, is, is removed, then of course that that can be reversible. There are other reversible causes of male fertility that relate to sexual performance and sexual function such as erectile and ejaculatory problems. So if they can be addressed, then, you know, in, in that case, um, fertility may be reversed. And lastly, varicoceles, which are dilatation of the veins within the spermatic cord, that's quite a controversial area in, in male fertility. But um, in some instances, treatment of a varicocele may reverse um, male infertility. And similarly, surgical treatment of, um, of obstruction somewhere along the genitourinary tract, because obstruction is, you know, constitutes quite a large cause of male infertility. So if there's a blockage somewhere that is amenable to surgical repair, then that also could be reversible. Men with uh, vasectomies, I mean, are they easily reversible? How long can they be before they reverse it? And when should they stop thinking about it? So I don't perform vasectomy reversals and I would, um, the urologists would certainly um, be in a better position to give um, answer this. But I do know that the, the longer the interval between vasectomy and proposed reversal, the less likely or the more difficult it will be for, for it to be reversed successfully. So the success of a, rever or of a reversal will be in part determined by the interval. Um, so historically, it was always thought that more than 10 years, like 10 years was this particular time frame where it was much harder to be successful. But I think now that's, um, it's not so much, well, the time's important, but it's also there are other factors such as the surgeon's skill and experience. So you really want to, you know, a surgeon who is, um, who does them all the time. And then other I mean, this whole conversation, I suppose you've got to include the, the female in this conversation because, of course, it may not be worthwhile pursuing a vasectomy reversal if the, the partner, the woman's age is, if she's 40, for instance. So there's got to be a conversation with the couple about um, what their expectations are and previous kind of understand their fertility status, um, particularly the female. If she's had pregnancies before, then that's... Um, gives you a kind of um, some greater reassurance about, you know, the couple being able to conceive should the reversal be successful later on. But if you're faced with a couple who where the woman's 40, she's never had any pregnancies before, or she's struggled to fall pregnant, either in a different relationship or, in a, you know, or in a different relationship, and they perhaps only want one child, and it's been 10 years since the man's, you know, vasectomy, then you, you really should be presenting other options um, to a reversal. Now, you did mention, Sarah, there are many irreversible causes. Uh, would you care to name some of the more important and common ones? Yeah, so unfortunately, there are many irreversible causes. Genetic and, and the genetic causes would be, um, would be the commonest of these. 
So genetic causes at the moment account for at least 15% of male infertility cases. In fact, after you know, thorough investigation of a man's infertility, in about half of cases, you never identify a specific cause, which is really frustrating, obviously, for the, for the patient and the clinician as well. And we think that at least half of those have a genetic um, origin. So the genetic basis is very strong and every, probably not every day, but the number of genetic causes are continually growing. So I think with, with more time, we will um, identify more. But of the genetic causes, um, the one that um, probably people are most familiar with is Klinefelter's syndrome, which is you know, very common and frequently underdiagnosed. And then following Klinefelters, there are, of course, other chromosomal abnormalities that may be numeric or structural. And then um, Y chromosome microdeletions, you know, um, well-known genetic cause of male infertility. Other than the genetic causes, there are other many other irreversible causes of male infertility. So, for instance, um, if there's been permanent damage to the testes bilaterally, from, for instance, um, recurrent infection or torsion or bilateral undescended testes that haven't been corrected at a young age or testicular cancer or chemotherapy or radiation directly to the testes where they've been permanently damaged that, of course, can lead um, to irreversible um, male infertility. Could I just come back to your genetic issues? And this is really important at the general practice coalface because we all know that in the client filters, unless we actually have a good feel of the testicles, we often miss things. But I just wonder whether it's something we do regularly. At least if not, then maybe should we be doing it in any couple looking toward having a baby? Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. I think that um, it would could potentially save a lot of time and, and heartache because it is so it is readily identifiable on examination. I mean, there are other causes, so it's not as if testes are four to six mil. It's definitely Klinefelter, but it would certainly raise your suspicion, and then at least you could you know, quickly arrange testing, including a karyotype of the man um, and save a lot of time. I think that's a great idea that for any couple presenting with um, or wanting to talk about um, um, family planning and fertility that you offer um, a man um, a testicular examination um, because you can gain so much information from that. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Riot Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people but only 7,073 of those with people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not going to find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. Have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time. 
or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old and you know, they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation and local anaesthetic in the femoral artery. And this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. We're now going to move on to exactly what you just mentioned, which is examination, because we've done the history and we know what to look for. Take us through examination and then uh, the types of investigations a GP really needs to do before we refer. And you need to tell us when we should refer. So examination, of course, of course, starts with the you know overall look of the man so I think the important thing firstly is to look for any signs obvious signs of you know overt systemic disease or hypogonadism so um, that's you know looking for features of hypogonadism would be assessing for the development of secondary sexual characteristics so for instance you know voice well you would have asked him if he'd gone through puberty or not but you can identify some things clearly on examination such as um auxiliary hair and facial hair and body habitus and height and limb length so the next part of the examination should be a targeted testicular examination um so this is best performed in with a man in the um, supine position so he's comfortable and first you know general inspection of um pubertal hair and then in terms of the examination of the testes, um, then the volume should be assessed um, with a Prada orchidometer, um, which is, um, I think you can get a free one through Healthy Mail. Is that right, David? If you complete the, the quiz. I can't remember, but I certainly got one. <laughs> so testicular volumes. Um, so this is actually not that difficult. And it's just important that, um, um, that you have the Prada orchidometer next to um, each testis and so that you can accurately kind of estimate the volume. You can also get an idea um, of, of the consistency of the testes, just very basically, I think, if, it's, if they're very firm or very soft. If they really feel quite soft, then that doesn't, that's not good. And also if they're small. So a normal testicular volume on a, using an orchidometer should be at least 50 mils and it's very common to have um, a volume discrepancy between sides um, so that's very normal but volume consistency I think it's a bit I think it's beyond the role of the GP to be feeling for epididymal um, masses um, I think that's you know not many people can do that and then also um, for the presence of the vas, again, that is something that's difficult to do unless you're doing it all the time. So I think the most important thing is just getting an idea about the testicular volumes um, and the consistency you might note. If it's feeling really soft and squishy, then that's not good. The other additional assessment you can do is um, just to um, check for a varicocele. 
So that's usually, we only, we only really care about varicose seals that are clinically obvious. So we don't worry about very small varicose seals that you can only see in ultrasound. So um, varicose seals will sometimes be very obvious even with the man lying down, but it can, they can be brought out if the man is standing and um, you ask him to cough and then you have that pressure and you can feel like a, like a bag of worms basically in the scrotum. So that's something else that, you know, you, you could quite quickly um, assess for. Sarah, thank you for giving us a very clear idea what to look for uh, in examining the male scrotum and testicles. Are there any other things we should look for or shall we move on to investigations? I think that's probably the, 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 the main. I could have said earlier that when you're assessing the general appearance of a man for signs of hypogonadism, I suppose you could also make note of his musculature if you were worried about anabolic steroid abuse. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Catford, let's move on to what GPs should investigate and when we should refer to an endocrinologist for a workup or an andrologist for a workup. So if you're presented with a couple um, who are having difficulty conceiving, so it's been at least um, 12 months or even at least six months if they're aged 35 years and older, mm -hmm. um, or I think in any couple who are expressing some anxiety or concern, I think then um, the first um, step to begin with is um, a semen analysis for the man. And depending upon that result, it, it may need to be repeated. So if you um, if what if a semen analysis is abnormal, you need to repeat it. So it needs to be done at least two to three times. Um, and that's because of the huge kind of intra-individual variation in semen parameters. Um, so it should be repeated. Other than a semen analysis, um, a blood test for hormone studies is the, is the next um, important test to do. Now, I'll come to the blood test shortly. I just got a simple question about semen analysis. Are all pathology labs the same out there? So that's a good question. So um, we do have our favourites, but all laboratories that are performing semen analyses should, um, you know, meet, meet uh, national standards. So I think um, getting a semen analysis where it's convenient for the patient is, um, is perfectly fine. Any advice on how best for the man to collect his semen or that they will be taught it by the collector? Yes, yeah, so this, this is a good, important point. So there are two options and depending upon the lab. So ideally, so the man can, can provide the sample on site and that is preferable, um, or um, he can um, provide a sample at home and transport it to the lab. So just looking at those two scenarios. So on site, obviously, the man will need to book, uh, book an appointment and the labs should be providing and giving the patient instructions. Um, but the abstinence period should be between two and seven days. And then he arrives on site and it's provided there. And then the scientists can look at it, you know, um, immediately and perform the analysis. So that needs to arrive um, and be examined within an hour of collection. And often there can be time delays. And if there are time delays beyond an hour, then that can affect um, the semen parameters, particularly um, motility. So you, you're, um, it's, you know, it's unsure whether those uh, markers will be an accurate reflection of the, of the man's um, sperm kind of production. And it should be transported at body temperature. So if a man does 
choose to provide a sample at home, you should tell him that um, the absence period of two to seven days and then to um, keep the jar in his um, shirt pocket as he transports it to the lab. Sarah, I think without actually wanting to say too much, you've given us a clue of how to choose a good pathology provider in the sense that if someone can provide an on-site service where the specimens do not need to be transported far before it's looked at within an hour seems to be the criteria to work with. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a great um, assessment, um, absolutely. And it really should be a lab that does them frequently. Um, so, you know, they've got the experience um, in terms of the staffing. Now, let's look at the blood test for hormones. What would you want GPs to do? This is important because often um, certain um, blood tests are missing. So testosterone, including so total testosterone, um, a sex hormone binding globulin and free testosterone, FSH and LH. Those are the, the most important um, initial hormone um, tests. And the man should be instructed um, to organise this um, test in the morning um, and preferably fasted. And that's because um, glucose can suppress testosterone production. So it's ideally done in the measured whilst the man is fasted and in the morning when testosterone levels are the highest because we know that obviously um, throughout the day testosterone levels reduce and it becomes difficult to interpret them in the afternoon. Okay, very, very important. Is thyroid disease anything worth us looking for or not? Yeah, I think, look, I was almost going to mention that because I think there is some argument to include some additional hormone studies on the initial panel. And I think probably in the GP, in, you know, in a general practice setting, it is a great opportunity to screen for other um, health issues. So whilst um, the tests I mentioned are the most important for examining fertility, in my practice, I do order additional tests, um, a screen for meta, you know, metabolic health. So I usually will do um, fasting glucose and HbA1c and a lipid profile together with basic, you know, full blood count, renal function, liver function, just because it's, you know, you don't often, you're not often able to capture men. So I think it's a good opportunity to examine their overall health. And then, yeah, I agree. I think thyroid function is, is it's, it's an easy test um, to do. So TSH. And there are some clinicians who would also measure prolactin at the first instance. I don't think that's necessary to begin with. So I would generally just leave it to those metabolic tests, the TSH and the fertility hormones. Very good. Is there a role for iron studies or completely irrelevant? No, I think iron studies, um, if you're concerned, of course, about the possibility of iron deficiency, but, yeah, it's a good point about um, the, the possibility of hemochromatosis because we know that that can cause um, primary testicular failure as well as um, hypopituitarism. So I would perform iron studies um, as a secondary test um, depending on the results of the first tests. Hopefully by now, um, the patient has already been referred to an andrologist and these results uh, will be on the way to say to you, what can a GP expect now that our patients has been referred to you? And what's our role from here on with regard to the patient and his partner's uh, journey toward conception? So it depends a bit on the um, semen analysis parameters. So there are many possible scenarios 
I guess the threshold for referring on would certainly be repeated abnormal semen parameters. So if you get a first abnormal semen analysis, I think I would, um, unless there's something very strikingly abnormal, like there's azospermia, mm -hmm. I would um, suggest repeating another semen analysis um, six weeks, at least six weeks later, and then looking at those results. And if, again, it's abnormal, then referring on. And then um, what to expect. So um, kind of routine investigations for a man attending a fertility clinic um, would be ensuring that all the hormone studies I've mentioned have been performed, genetic testing if that's indicated, and a testicular ultrasound. Those are the kind of three arms. And then, of course, ensuring that a semen analysis has been performed at least two or three times, because often we get referrals from just one semen analysis alone. How quickly can you all come to an understanding that uh, the person will have problems conceiving and what options can you offer them? So I, th I think it's important to acknowledge that semen analyses are quite a crude measure of a man's fertility potential. It's the best measure we have, but there are downsides. There's a lot of overlap between fertile and infertile men in terms of sperm counts. So it's a difficult area to study. Unless a man has azospermia, it's um, difficult um, really to comment on his chances of natural conception, looking purely at sperm concentration. You can make a bit of a judgment, but it, it, it's, it's difficult. And ultimately, it's not just about um, sperm numbers, of course. So the motility of the sperm is important, but um, even more so is the sperm, the sperm function. And we seem analyses um, are not very good at assessing or predicting sperm's fertilizing capacity and its ability to adhere and recognize the egg. So there are drawbacks um, to seam analyses, but, um, but as I mentioned, it's the, the, the best kind of test that we have. What next if there is in fact continuing mm -hmm. problem or when you suspect that the chance of natural, if you like, conception is low? So if a man has, um, it, it does depend on what semen parameter is abnormal, maybe we should start with just a slightly low sperm count and maybe slightly low sperm motility. So in this case, um, what's, you know, um, a, a positive thing is that the man has sperm in the ejaculate and it does depend a lot on the female partner and her situation. So if, for instance, you're, you have a couple who've been trying for two years and the woman is, you know, 36 and they're, you know, pretty kind of time's ticking and they're desperate to, to, to get along and she has um, no um, identified fertility issues and it's purely um, the, the man who has a, slight, has a low sperm count, after making sure that they've been having regular intercourse and timing it, you know, around ovulation, et cetera, then you would be talking to them about assisted reproductive um, technologies available. And there are, you know, a few to discuss, but in the context of male infertility, often it's um, a matter of using IVF and ICSI, which is when you select out a single sperm and inject that into the egg um, that is required um, to overcome um, abnormal semen parameters but it's very dependent on the individual case kind of the other scenario which is very different is when when there's no sperm in the ejaculate and that makes it a bit more challenging 
if there's no sperm in the ejaculate, it's not completely impossible. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that, that's right. So in this situation where there is azospermia and there's no sperm in the ejaculate, um, it's very important to try and identify where the problem is. So three quarters of cases or 75% of cases, it will be because of, of, of a primary testicular issue. So there's primary testicular failure. And that may be because of a whole, for a whole, whole host of reasons, like we've already discussed, um, such as like a, you know, Kleinfelters or some other genetic cause or, you know, inf infection, et cetera. So that accounts for the vast majority of cases um, of, um, of azospermia and indeed male infertility overall. And they're the hardest um, group um, to treat because you, there's no medication that be, can be taken that will enhance sperm production when the testes themselves are damaged. And so if there's no sperm in the ejaculate and there's evidence of primary somatogenic failure or primary testicular failure, then the only resort you have option is trying to surgically retrieve sperm from the testes themselves and then use that sperm in an IVF cycle. This is in contrast um, to another cause of azospermia where the testes are working perfectly fine, but there's some sort of obstruction along the passage. So the vas, there's congenital absence of the vas from birth, or there may be some big prostatic cyst, or there may be some, you know, some sort of any sort of blockage along the root, um, in which case um, sperm may still need to be surgically retrieved, but it's far easier um, than for the former case. Um, and, um, and the success or the likelihood of finding sperm is, is very, very high um, because you can simply go in with a needle and, and, um, and aspirate some sperm and then use that in an IVF cycle. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it's very clear to me uh, how it progresses step by step, Sarah. Are there any things that I might have missed along the way? So... Yes, we didn't talk about um, the small print of causes of male infertility. So I think overall, I mean, when I think about male infertility, I have four main kind of causes in my, actually five, sorry, I'll say five main causes in my head. So I think about firstly, um, a primary issue with the testes. So primary testicular failure or primary somatogenic failure. And that accounts for 75% of cases overall. So that's where your money is really. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, that's the hardest group because, you know, there's nothing you can really do to repair that testicular damage. Following that, the second commonest kind of overarching cause would be obstruction. Um, and so you just need to remind yourself of the anatomy and at any time point from the testes to the urethra, basically, where there's some sort of, there could be a blockage along the way. Um, and just, um, so that's, that's the other kind of um, main cause um, is obstruction. And that may account for up to 20% of cases. Mm -hmm. The third main cause, um, which is very rare and accounts for less than 2% of cases, is hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction, mm -hmm. so where you have um, a deficiency of um, FSH and, and, and LH, and that might be due to a whole, for a whole host of reasons, most notably pituitary tumours. And those cases are very rare, but you want to identify them because you can actually 
treat those cases and many men will go on to conceive naturally. So in, in those scenarios, their testes are working fine, but they've got a deficiency of, of pituitary hormones. So by simply replacing those hormones, you can achieve sperm production and many men will go on to conceive naturally. And obviously it's an, also, it's an important group to identify because clearly if someone's got a pituitary tumour, then you want to, you know, diagnose that. So that's the third kind of cause of the endocrine hormone deficiencies, very rare but important. And then the, um, the fourth group would be sexual um, dysfunction. So they're usually really easily identified on history. So a man will usually, um, you know, talk about issues um, with, um, with intercourse. Um, and then you may need to target um, um, treatments, um, yeah, depending on what the issue is. And then the fifth um, cause, um, which is also small print, is sperm autoimmunity. And that is um, identified on a semen analysis. It's an additional test that can be done at the time of a standard semen analysis. And it basically is when um, sperm antibodies are present in that, that clump on to um, parts of the sperm and can interfere with the sperm's function. Their sperm antibodies um, are quite common and we think and it's, it's usually in the context of some sort of trauma to the, the blood testis barrier where the man's serum has been exposed um, to you know, testicular or to sperm rather and it's recognised as a foreign antigen and then the body produces antibodies against that. So often may or may not be a history of trauma to the testes. Many vasectomised men will have sperm antibodies for that reason. And, um, and sperm antibodies are really only a problem if they're binding to the head of the sperm or the midpiece of the sperm so the sperm can't function properly. That is not, um, that's something that we would order in the fertility clinic as part of a standard semen analysis. And that is probably only a few percent of the cases overall. Um, but that's just the, the final kind of um, cause of male infertility. Sarah, what are your final or key messages to GPs? I think the key message to GPs is um, please um, involve the man in, in conversations about um, family planning. Ensure that you're not only taking a history um, from, the, from the woman but also the man and, um, and, and taking the opportunity um, to um, perform a testicular examination because um, there will be many of you who, who, who potentially will um, pick up um, very small testicular volumes um, and um, our take-home message is, um, is to ensure if you get have a first initial abnormal semen um, repeat it um, because you'll be surprised um, at the variation and sometimes you can have a very abnormal result that subsequently is completely normal um, so please yeah repeat semen analyses and also um, perform um, a testosterone level in the morning that would be those are my key messages. Thank you for your okay. time today, Sarah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. Health Ed webcasts are carefully created 
to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.